We're in Ezekiel. There we go. All right. God did not give me a, a powerful voice. Um, thank God for um, modern technology. So we're in Ezekiel chapter 21, obviously. But actually the passage, the section begins in Ezekiel 20, verse 45. I think I ended last week in verse 44. So it's a long passage. Again, we'll just look at it thematically. But let's pick up at Ezekiel 20, verse 45, and then I'll read through verse chapter 21. Verse 45, God's holy word. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Teman, speak out against the south, prophesy against the forest land of the Negev. Say to the forest of the Negev, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to kindle a fire in you, and consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched. The whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. All flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it, and it shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, Lord, God, they are saying of me, Is he not just speaking parables? And the, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Jerusalem and speak against the sanctuaries and prophesy against the land of Israel. Say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you. I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, as I will cut off from you the righteous from the wicked. Therefore my sword will go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus all flesh will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It will not return to its sheath again. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart, bitter grief, groan in their sight. And when they say to you, Why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it comes and it will happen, declares the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, a sword, a sword sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice, the rod of my son, despising every tree? It is given to be polished that it may be handled, a sword to be sharpened and polished to give into the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people, therefore strike your thigh. For there is a testing, and what if even the rod which despises will be no more, declares the Lord God. You therefore, son of man, prophesy, clap your hands together. Let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword for the slain. It is a sword for the great one slain, which surrounds them, that their hearts may melt, and many fall at their gates. I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is made for striking like lightning. It is wrapped up in readiness for slaughter. Show yourself sharp. Go to the right. Set yourself. Go to the left. Wherever your edge is appointed, I will also clap my hands together. I will appease my wrath. I, the Lord, have spoken. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them will go out of one land and make a signpost, make it at the head of the way to the city. You shall mark a way for the sword to come, and to Rabat of the sons of Ammon, and to Judah, and to fortify Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways. To use divination, he shakes the arrows, he consults the household idols, 
he looks at the liver. Into his right hand came the divination. Jerusalem to set battering rams to open the mouth for slaughter, to lift up the voice with the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up ramps, to set a siege wall. And it will be to them like a false divination in their eyes. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings iniquity to, uh, to remembrance that they may be seized. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered and all your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sin appears, because they have come to your remembrance, you'll be seized with the hand. And you, O slain, wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown, this will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low, abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin. I will make it. This also will be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the sons of Ammon, concerning their approach, and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for the slaughter, to cause it to consume, that it may be like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the wicked who are slain, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end. Return it to the sheath, in the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow on you with the fire of my wrath. I will give you into the hands of brutal men, skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be in the midst of the lands. You will not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess this is a terrible word. And you are an overwhelmingly awesome God. And I ask for measures of grace tonight in the proclamation of this, your word, your truth. And that for all of us, that we would be especially supple and submissive to sit at your feet and to believe everything that you tell us and to respond accordingly. May we not be numbered with those who have an evil heart of unbelief and sit in your churches. We pray, Lord God, that the faith that we profess to have, we would indeed have, and that the blood of Christ that we claim to cover our sins would indeed cover our sins. Thank you for grace and mercy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I may have mentioned this before. I think I have. Again, we're looking at essentially what the title of the sermon is, The Sword of the Lord, for obvious purposes. You you see that that's the major figure that runs through certainly chapter 21, along with the figure of fire, as we'll just look in just a bit. The first 24 chapters of this lengthy book of Ezekiel have to do with God's warning to Israel, a rebuke to Israel, and then also a promise of judgment upon Israel. And it will be a promise of judgment upon Israel, those who are found within Israel that don't have true and saving faith. And it's proved by their living living in sin, especially the sin of idolatry, which they seem especially addicted to. So, as I mentioned, the first 24 chapters, so we're in chapter 20, 21. We've got 21? 
22, and 23, and 24. This, this is one of the reasons I took a break a few weeks ago. And I, I want to I press on with it. God writes the Bible. And um, I confess there, there are stretches like this, not just, in the, not just in the book of Ezekiel. But I would challenge you, if you're, if you're a Bible reader, and I, I hope we are, um, take a book. Take all of the minor prophets. Take the major prophets. Um, Isaiah, Lamentation, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Take these things and, and honestly plow through them. You'll find this. So this is a warning passage. We've mentioned this before. It comes from our... My, my, the language in my head comes from the language of the Confession, chapter 14, dealing with faith. I'm in a, a church of people I know, everyone here I know, that we love the Lord. And faith gives us the ability to to see our need of Jesus, to see the ugliness of sin, the deserts of sin being death, and then the one who takes death for us, Jesus. So we can see. What was the verse here? I'll just tell you right away. Verse 27 is the mercy passage. And I've I've mentioned this before. We will have judgment after judgment after judgment where where you're really, um, if you've had a hard week, you you, you really don't want to read this. I, I, I have mentioned that amidst all of the judgment, most often, I want to say almost every time, God will have a verse or two or three of mercy. The king of Israel that he's going to put down, I think, is Zedekiah, but he promises another king will come. This will be a righteous king, a holy king. He's going to come out of Judah. Obviously, this is King Christ. So there's always a token of grace, always a token of mercy. And so the people with faith are looking for that. Is there any hope? Yes, there is hope in the coming Jesus Christ. But we, we, we would not be faithful to the word if we denied the other 30, 31, passages, 31 verses in the passage. Clearly, God is giving a warning of impending judgment. And he's the better part of the judgment goes to, to Israel. And specifically in the context to, to Judah, the southern kingdom, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. And this, he's, he gets rebuked here, but he's going to come and he's essentially going to subjugate the southern kingdom, the two, the two tribes, two and a half tribes, and take them off into to slavery. But this is a warning of God. The Bible is filled with promises. The Bible is filled with um, the, ver- the verse that we opened with, Psalm from the Psalms, that God daily bears our burdens. I almost want to weep when I, if you, if you, if you, deal with heavy things that burden you and human beings can't take that burden off you and then you read a passage where God says I will daily bear your burdens I literally wish I could see and touch Jesus and physically hand him my burden so he could physically take it from me but so there are these wonderful wonderful warm promises and blessings but then the word of God does have these things And the warnings of God's impending judgment, he's profuse with them. So when God comes to judge, no one will be able to say, I never knew you were a holy God and that you hated sin and you'll judge sin with death. I never knew. We we saw this morning the promises to us and to our children. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing you be born into a, a believing house. Believing mom, believing dad, with Bibles, sacraments, the prayers of God's people, watching your folks labor to live for Jesus. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And God brings his elect that way. But also coupled with that, 
there is, there is culpability that comes along with that privilege. So these are people that have been sitting in the church, the Old Testament church, but they've, they've rejected God in Christ. They've, they've embraced their sin. They're idolaters. Too much is given, much is required. So one of the principles that the Bible talks about, both in Old Testament here, and this is implicitly, and, and explicitly in the New Testament, judgment comes to the house of God first. So I know folks think, what about those poor folks in, I don't know, San Francisco or Provincetown, Cape Cod? What? They're just openly licentious. They openly reject Jesus. I feel bad for them. Because on the judgment day, they're going to have the sword. They're going to have fire. But the place of greatest danger is, is not the person sitting outside of the church. The place of greatest privilege is sitting in the church. Greatest, greatest privilege is sitting in the church in a believing home. But also... The place of the greatest danger is to be in a gospel, law, Bible-preaching church and to be in a Bible-believing Christian home with a Christian mom and dad. Greatest blessing, but greatest danger. Because to be found with an evil heart of unbelief in the household of faith, in a Christian household, in this household, they receive the greater condemnation. So, Chapters 1 through 24 says, essentially, judgment comes to the household of God first. This is why it's a bad idea as a believer to go, looky yonder, God's going to take care of all of those people, and boy, is he going to shellac them, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do that. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. Will God judge those who are outside of the church, outside of Christ, living in their sin? Yes, he will. He's going to pick up on chapter 25 and say, now you Gentiles, I'm going to deal with you. But half of the book, he says to people that say, oh, I I am a believer. I'm in the church. I have a Bible. I have the word. I have sacraments. I'm in a believing home. But I'm living like a pagan. And God says, then you're going to get the sword. And you're going to get the fire. So this is a warning. And it it is that principle of judgment begins with the house of God first. And that's the negative side of what Paul puts positively in Romans 1 and Romans 2. The gospel goes to what entity first and what entity second. The gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And that was, if I can complete, the we looked at Acts 2 verse 39. The promise is to you and to your children. You Jew and you your Jewish children. And then to those who are outside, far off, the Gentiles. That's the, that's the positive promise. So when we say judgment comes to the household of God first, that's negatively. But the principle is also seen in the positive. The gospel of salvation comes to the Jew first. Kids born in a Christian home are going to hear it before the Hindu born in a Hindu home. And then maybe God in his province will send the Hindu to America or send a Christian to India, and then they'll hear the gospel. But this is a warning of God. It's to the household of God. Too much is given, much is required. I've said this probably so many times, you're probably sick of hearing me, but I really do, I would love it. I think it would help you if you would read and study larger catechism question 151. 151 shows us how we aggravate our sins, how we make our sins more ugly before God. That, that's what every one of these chapters does. God says to them, I married you, I cleansed you, I gave you everything, 
and you ran off and you gave yourself to paramours. You're worse than a prostitute. You pay. You don't receive payment. And therefore, this passage. And therefore, the previous passage. That, that's what's going on. When we look at what happens, he, he calls... Look at verse... Uh, well, I, I, when we're looking at 21, and God has a word against them, and he prophesies against them... I mentioned from, I, I think I'm using the language of uh, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews uh, 4, um, the evil heart of unbelief. What we see here is the judgment of God, which is why I read um, chapter 23. Sometimes we get confused between judgment and discipline. God disciplines everyone that loves the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. If you love Jesus, he's gonna, the Father will discipline you. And his discipline of you in me testifies that we are his legitimate children. Read Hebrews chapter 12. And none of the discipline looks is, is pleasant. It's always painful. But after we receive painful discipline, it produces the peaceable fruits of righteousness. We get confused between that between receiving fatherly chastisement for the purpose of further sanctification, assuring us that we're in a state of salvation and grace, testifying to us that God loves us, conforming us into the image of God in Christ. We, we confuse that with this. That's not this. That's not this. For every true believer here, I know everyone here, and I have, I'll quote, paraphrase the Bible, I have good, good hopes that every one of us knows the Lord, Jesus in spirit and truth. This chapter is not for the believer. It's for the unbeliever in the church. For us as believers, when we begin to live in sin, to engage in lawlessness, our Father loves us so much that he'll correct us away from it. It is not my view, I don't think the Bible teaches it, that God wumps us with a stick 24-7. I find that, yes, he does retain the right to use fatherly chastisement, but my own experience has been, yes, he will chastise me, but it's oftentimes an expression of love, grace, and mercy that breaks my heart and makes me sick to sin against God, and thus I let, let go of sin. So, yes, he does discipline, but often he persuades us with love, kindness, and gentleness. So, when you come here and you look and you think, well, I'm a believer, will I receive what these people are getting? Death here, which is a harbinger of eternal death. As a believer, you won't. There is no condemnation in Christ. And you say, well, why is this given? Because we're being told judgment comes to the household of God first because the household of God is a mixed multitude. It contains both goats and sheep. It contains both tares and wheat. I said this morning with baptism, I, I believe little the infant children of believers should be baptized. I think it's biblical. I do believe the circumcision to, pass, uh, to, to baptism. I believe all of that. But I, I'll let you in on another thing I really believe. Us as covenant Baptists, Pado Baptists, along with the Credo Baptists, we have the same, we're in the same exact boat. We'll baptize our two year old kiddo and say they're a member of the covenant, they, 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 to, to you and to your children, yes. And then, so you'll baptize your seven to 12 year old kid and say, see, it's on profession of faith, good. What I, I always want to say is, okay, let's watch you, my kid get to be 25 and your kid get to be 25. Then we'll see. Is my kid professing Christ? 
Are they walking with Jesus, baptized at two months? Now is your kid loving Jesus, walking with Jesus, living for Christ when you baptize them at seven years old? That's where the rubber meets the road. How do they live? What's going to happen when they grow up? Are our kids going to be grown-up pagans whether they were baptized at two months or baptized at seven years? So I don't really fight over this because it, I, I know what the Bible teaches and I know what I see by experience. The church is a mixed multitude. The promise to you and to your children is to the elect children and that's God's business, election. And time will tell. And what we see here is time has told. These people say we belong to the Lord, but they prove by their life that they don't belong to the Lord. They're turning, turning their backs on God. They're living in sin. And when they turn their backs on God and they live in sin and they embrace idolatry, which they do here, what would you call that? If you had a wife, you're a husband, you have a wife, and she commits adultery in your face, and she's a harlot to your face, does she love you? No. What does she feel towards you? She hates you. So when we're looking at this sword that God brings upon people that profess to believe him, the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy, I'll, it'll come to me later, he, God will repay to their face everyone that hates him. Unbelief is an expression of hatred of God. Living in sin, embracing idolatry, is an expression of hatred to the true God. Now, it's not, it's not palatable to us. It's not even polite to say what I just said. It's not polite. To say to someone, you hate God. You hate God in Christ. You hate what God loves and you love what God hates because you hate God. You would seem... It doesn't seem polite to say that. These people hate God. People in the visible household of faith that say they believe, but they embrace sin, which they clearly do, and God brings a pagan against them because they're living like pagans. God says, I will repay to you to your face because you hate me. This chapter is so overwhelming. I mean, I told my wife, I half want to cry looking at passages like this. And actually, God tells Ezekiel, I do want you to cry. When you preach this, I want you to cry. Well, that's the right response. What, what, what preacher comes to this passage and he's told go to the household of God now if you if you told a person well go out to the I don't know pick a sin that you find especially ugly and pick the people that especially live in it and you're told by God now go tell them I'm going to bring my sword and what would you do that's right for the glory of God I have to do it that's exactly right you're all going to get the sword first death and second death there check Oh, that's not this. That's not go out yonder. That's not go to people that don't look like you, that don't talk like you, that don't sound like you. This is go to your folks. Go to your family. Go to your brother and sister Jews that you live with, that you love. They're living like pigs. They're living like pagans. And say, God says, chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 22, to 21, God's going to bring his sword against you. Because you're living like a pig. You're living like a pagan. And he's going to bring this. Judgment's coming. Jonah didn't even want to go to, to, Jonah didn't want to, go to Nineveh. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? Because he, 
He knew God was merciful. He knew on the off chance, if the people repented, then God would do what? He would relent. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? Because he hated the Assyrians. And why did he hate the Assyrians? The Assyrians were hateable. They were awful people. They abused the stew out of the Jews. It's like saying to a Jew, go tell a Nazi that there could be mercy for him. What are you kidding me? So he didn't want to go to him because he knew that God was merciful. Imagine God tells you, go to your people and say to your people, if you continue in this, you will perish. It's a, te- it's a terrible... It's, I, I wish like, <laughs> parts of the Bible weren't there. But this is, this is a warning to those living in their sin in the church. It testifies that the church is a mixed multitude. There's no perfect church, no perfect Presbyterian church, Baptist church. There's no perfect church. We're a mixed multitude until we go home. It consists of wheat and tares. And he here is speaking to the tares in the church. And Ezekiel doesn't know who they are. There are believers here. Are they going to suffer? They're going to suffer, but it will be chastisement to them and then they go to heaven. But the unbelievers in the church, they're going to receive the judgment of God and they're going to go to hell. And who knows? God knows. And a lot of times the people sitting there know. He doesn't know that I really don't believe. Yeah, but God does. He doesn't know that I'm going home and bowing down to Moloch. Yeah, but God knows. And God has a word for you. Well, I don't really believe that because you can't see me. I can't see anything. God can see everything. And God tells his man, I want you to tell the people this. So that's what's going on. When we see the sword of God, God calls it the sword of the Lord. I think there was a fundamentalist Baptist paper that's a bulletin or publication that called it the sword of the Lord. People always yammering on about judgment, 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 wrath, wrath. I I find that off-putting if they're faithless. But if they're faithful, I watched a young man take his little bullhorn out on a on a YouTube video, and he was very gentle. And he was getting cursed at, and he walked out and said he basically did a Jonah and Nineveh, but he threw the gospel in there. He threw the gospel. And you think, well, boy, he's ridiculous. I thought, wow, praise God for this young man. What courage. What fidelity to the word of God. But this is a justice passage. So when you, when you see the sword of the Lord, it's not, it's not fatherly chastisement. This is justice. So you used to call it like um, when people would be, when, when capital punishment. And it... It's justice. When you execute a murderer, it's, n- it's not to reform the murderer. It's an application of justice. The man that sheds another man's blood, he has to die to satisfy divine justice. Otherwise, the, the land will be polluted. So it's not, can you reform the guy that murdered his brother? That, that's not even a question. He's going to die because justice demands that he die. This is, an administ- this is the application of strict justice. This, this is not designed to, re- to sanctify or to reform. This is designed to satisfy God. We don't think like that. I, I know it's... I want to present the picture of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is an infinitely holy God. And the wage of sin really is what it really is. And He will be satisfied. He really will. 
Um, and, and he will be satisfied by his justice will be satisfied by this. The first death brought about by the Babylonian battle is a harbinger of the second death, which is damnation, which is eternal hell. That's where he satisfies his justice. And he's going to satisfy that justice against people here in the household of faith. I get all the time calls, not, and I'm not talking church members, but I get calls like this. Um, Bob, and Bob went to church when he was 10 years old. He lived as a, an avowed atheist, and he's pretty close to leaving the world. And isn't it going to be great when he meets Jesus? Um, beloved, the wages of sin really is what it really is. We don't put anybody in and we don't keep anybody out. And so God says to the unbeliever in the church, I will satisfy my justice. Now, the justice of God can be satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's grace. We all deserve this. So when we, when we come here, we tremble at the unbelief in the church. And we rejoice with tears, I think. This is why I don't think we should do this kind of a passage like this. Because... We, we deserve, every one of us deserves this. Every one of us does. I mean, read the Bible and then be honest with yourself. Have you scored a hundred on God's tests of, of the law? Have you loved God perfectly? Have you loved human beings perfectly? No. Then we deserve this. But we're not going to get this. Why? Because of verse 27. We get grace and mercy. Why? Because God is love and God is grace. But when we've been rescued from this, it should make us... I mentioned it. I, I feel sad for our country right now, and you can tell it with some of my expressions. I feel extra sad when I see Christians sing. And I've had a, a few of this lately, not by church members, but um, Christian nationalism, it's nutty to me, by the way. If anybody in this church is looking at this stuff, listening to this stuff, stop it right now. Go wash your hands. Go wash your eyeballs. Go wash your ears. It's awful. It is not Christian at all. Not Christian. It's not dove-like. It's not lamb-like. It doesn't bring glory to God. It's awful. And it's going to divide the church. Uh, it's going to, and it's a bad witness. And, 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 and the thing that those guys promoting those things that, that, that they're going to receive is the sword. It is antithetical to true Christianity. True Christians are the gentlest, most loving, most merciful folks that you can see. Why? Because we've not got the sword and we deserve the sword. And, the, and when you listen to these other people and they're out there and they're using the times in which we live to promote their nonsense. Anyways, that's enough. I don't know why I went down that road, but I did. Okay. So in what we're looking at, God sometimes will speak a similar theme, whether it's judgment like we've been looking at or grace and mercy as we've been seeing, but he does it in various genres. This one, we've seen uh, we've seen um, symbolical language. Remember the early chapters, chapter one, chapter two, the wheels within the wheels, which is judgment, the eyes spinning around on the wheels of judgment. These are war machines. Clearly, it's a picture of God's judgment. It's going everywhere. God sends the angels. It's judgment. This is not really tricky to figure out what's going on. God's going to bring divine judgment. He's going to use the engines of war. The eyes go everywhere. They see everything. He's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar and bring war to bring death, which is what the war brings. 
And so he'll use symbolical language. And here, what the Israelites, people in Judah say, oh, he's speaking in parables. So some people say that, um, that the chapter that we're looking at is a parable. I don't know. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I would classify it as a strict parable. He does use symbolic language. And the two main symbols which depict divine justice, and there are two of them, you have the main, the main symbol here in chapter 21 is the sword. And God mentions the sword 15 times. And I'm aware that the Bible, every once in a while, uses a sword to show some, some divine purging. So a sanctifying. This is not sanctifying. This is, this is condemning. This is judging. So predominantly when you see the figures of fire and sword, it means condemnation. And the fire and the sword are for the purpose of bringing what? Why do men go to war? There's a man that said, war is about fighting, fighting's about what? Killing. War is about fighting, fighting's about killing. That's what's going on here. With the figure of, of the sword and the figure of the fire, they're instruments to bring about God's justice, the wages of sin is death, ultimately pointing forward. Now, I don't think it's parabolic, but certainly God does use symbolical language of the sword and, and the fire. And that's what... Um, now look at verse, look at chapter 20, verse, um, what do I want? Which is interesting to me. Um, look at verse 49, 2049. This is Ezekiel complaining to God. Now put yourself in Ezekiel's place. You are God's prophet. You love God. You love the people. You do love the people. And God gives you, he says, I want to, here's 24 chapters. I want you to preach 24 chapters of judgment against my people. Just put yourself in his spot. The guy probably wants to go play golf. In verse 49, he says, Ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, is he not just speaking in parables? What are they saying when they say that? This is... Who knows what this guy is talking about? This is so hard. Who can understand? Who can understand God saying, Judah, you're like a lion and I'm going to put a hook in your nose and I'm going to kill you. Who can understand when God says, Judah, you're like a fruitless vine. I'm going to rip you up and throw you in the fire. Who can understand that? That's so hard. Who can understand when God says, I'm going to bring a sword and put it into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and hit you with it, and I'm going to set the whole land on fire? Oh, this is a parable. So hard to understand. We don't even know what you're talking about. Let's go out for Chinese food. Oh, beloved, what do we call that? We call that the evil heart of unbelief. These people are looking at passages. Is it symbolical language? Yes. Is it hard to understand? You know why most people hate the Bible? Not because of the hard passages that you can't understand. They're gobs of passages that you can't understand. There are a couple of subjects in the Bible I've studied until my eyeballs fall out and I can't figure them out. But this is not one of them. People hate the Bible if they hate the Bible because it's too clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but me, by me. Well, I don't like that because I'm worshiping Buddha. Sorry. I'm worshiping Sai Baba. Sorry. He's the only way. God says, I'm going to bring judgment against people who sin. Now, I've said this a lot. If you're not a sinner, you don't need Jesus. And if you're not a sinner, you don't need to worry about judgment because God's only going to bring judgment on sinners. So if you don't sin, you're good to go. I'm being a little silly, but you wouldn't be surprised 
I've had people come in my office and say, I do not sin. This is not hard to understand. When people in the church hear this word from God and say, you know, there are so many interpretations of the Bible, so many. Who knows? We can't even understand. It's so perplexing, you can't even understand it. Got to go play golf. That's unbelief. That's a hatred of God. And God says to these people, okie doke, you can say that you don't understand. I'm still bringing my sword. And when it comes, they're going to go from jovial, light-hearted scoffers. And he's going to say from verse 7 onwards, what's going to happen when judgment day comes? They're going to be so overwhelmed that they'll swoon. They're going to shake. Their knees are going to be... The scoffing's gone. The mocking's gone. All of the, oh, I don't, I, I, I don't believe in the God of judgment. You read the Bible? <laughs> in judgment day? I don't believe in judgment day. Do you read the Bible? But it will come. I mentioned earlier, and I think it's worthwhile. Look at, again, verse 6. This is very worthwhile. You, son of man, groan with a breaking heart and with bitter grief, groan in their sight. And when you say, when they say to you, why do you groan? You say, because of the news that's coming. Every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and so on. Uh, he has to preach the Babylonian captivity to, to, to his fellow Jews. And God tells him, I want you to moan and groan and weep and wail. You say, well, that's a little too emotional. I don't want a preacher that's emotional. I don't want a preacher that's unemotional, to tell you the truth. If you're going to read John 3.16 like you're reading a dictionary, you need to sit down. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And that's dictionary time? There's something wrong with you. If you can't read the gospel without weeping, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are your sins forgiven? You say, well, do you have to be Mr. where you're... you're feelings on your sleeve it might help it might help having someone preach the gospel to you like they're reading a dictionary does that make you want to love jesus i don't think so and if someone says i have been saved from my sins i've been saved for god yeah what time's lunch he doesn't believe it he doesn't believe it if when someone comes and says the wages of sin is death and they're looking at their watch ho hum you don't believe it you don't believe it J. Vernon McGee, not reformed, I know. I love J. Vernon McGee. You can turn me into the OPC thought police if you want, but I love J. Vernon McGee. He, he was a country boy, Georgia. He was, Presbyterian. he was Presbyterian and went Baptist, whatever. He was dispensational, whatever, whatever. I still love him. J. Vernon McGee said this, and he was a pithy old guy. He said he never, ever, ever spoke about judgment in hell this in a joking way ever he always spoke about it super solemn almost with a tremble in his voice that that's exactly right that is exactly right and it gets back to why would ezekiel be told preach this horrible message with tears in your eyes 
God has told him back in Ezekiel chapter 18, it's perplexing according to the sovereignty of God. I get it. And I know my Calvinists, my hyper-Calvinists think that I'm not a Calvinist, but I really am. God says, why will you die? Why will you die? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Repent and live. God, it delights God to save. Will he judge those found apart from Christ? Yes. Does he rejoice in the death of the wicked? No. This is not a pleasant message. And God sends his man, Ezekiel, to Ezekiel's people. What would happen if you knew your mother or your father or your own son or your own daughter or your own brother or your own sister was found in the church but not in Christ and they were found in their sin and they were going to receive this? And God told you to go tell them. Brother, sister, and mother, father. Hypocritical faith is not true faith. Mouthing a few words, genuflecting, is not being found in Jesus. Please believe to be saved or you're going to be judged. And what happens if they die in their sin and they receive this? How would you... You would be weeping. And God says, I want you to weep. I want the people to see you weep. Brokenhearted. And then I'm not going to go through the rest. But he does, he does this often in the chapter. He'll have a whole section where he'll have classes of people that will receive judgment. And I'll just, I'm going to tell you what he does. It's judgment's going to come to the household of God first. But he says it's going to come to all of Israel, all of Judah. And then later he says it's going to come to the king. I think this is the king Zedekiah. He says, I'm even going to judge the instrument, uh, uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to judge him. I'm going to judge the people of Ammon, all the people around the land that have corrupted my people. So God goes on to say, justice to, to you, justice to you, justice to you. Everyone that's found apart from God in Christ. Everyone that's living like a pagan. Everyone that has an evil heart of unbelief. Everyone, God says, in the land. I'm going to bring the sword. And the, the, the thing that I do find, and I'm going to end with the, with, with hopefully what I find I find comforting is chapter 21 is not I know this is going to sound stunning, stunning to you chapter 21 is not chapter 24 we still have the sword is coming for you unbeliever in the church the sword is coming for you, unbeliever in the church. The sword is coming for you, unbeliever in the church. Sunday, 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 Sunday. What does each Sunday represent? An expression of God's justice, true. What does each Sunday represent? An expression of God's tender mercy and patience. Why is God so slow to bring fire? You look at this country. I love this country. We provoke God to his face including the church. Why doesn't God not just send fire? Because he's love, he's grace, he's mercy, and it's the patience and the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. So judgment has not come yet. The sword has not come yet. The Babylonians are not here yet. They're still alive. They're not in hell. It's the day of grace. And look to the king that God says, I'm going to bring the faithful king. And it's in him that we find grace and mercy because he takes justice. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.
Our final hymn tonight is hymn number 368. 